Hello and welcome to the August episode of the Eva Jane Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today I'm joined by Laura Peachy discussing the faecal microbiome of Exmoor ponies and Pia Sloan talking us through the effects of femoropatellar OCD on future racing performance. Laura Peachy is Senior Lecturer in Parasitology at Bristol Vet School, focusing on research related to the equine microbiome. Laura is joining us to discuss her recent paper titled The Faecal Microbiome of Exmoor Ponies Shows Stepwise Compositional Changes with Increasing Levels of Management by Humans. Laura, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your recent paper in EVJ on the faecal faecal microbiome of Exmoor ponies. So as you wrote in your introduction, um, domestication has been associated with negative changes to an animal's environment, breeding and behaviour. Could you give us a summary of what's known about the effect of captivity and management practices on the equine microbiome so far? Yes, I can give you a brief summary. There's been a number of papers looking at different aspects of domestication and how that impacts the microbiome. For example, high starch diets and um, can cause increases in proteobacteria specifically. Um, More high fibre diets can increase in methane producing bacteria. And there's been associations between different types of diet and bacterial diversity. There's also links with different medical treatments such as antibiotics and anthelmintics and alterations to the microbiome. And But what we don't have is a sort of overall holistic view of how those things all add together to then change the equine microbiome from what it would be naturally to what it is in domestication and what the impact of that is on equine health overall. Um, There are a number of studies which have looked at uh, comparisons between wild and captive horses, but often they're comparing horses of different breeds and in different environments. So it's very difficult to read into that exactly what the impacts of domestication are. So what were the aims and objectives of this study? So we wanted to standardise the variation caused by genetics and as much as we could. Um, because I, as I mentioned previously, um, a lot of studies have compared horses of different breeds in in the world versus captivity. So we wanted to look at one breed um, and try and standardise as much as possible about them. So including their um, gender and their rough age, so that we could look at the impact of the management alone rather than having lots of conflicting variation, making things confusing. And we also wanted to have more than two groups, because just by chance, you're likely to have a difference between any two groups of animals that are managed separately. So we wanted to have a sort of sliding scale of of human intervention so that we could be more confident in any differences that we could see between these three groups. So which animals did you manage to recruit into the study? And what were the differences between the three populations you studied? So we, yeah, we were recruiting Exmoor ponies that were kept in different conditions. So the most um, natural, naturally managed population were the uh, uh, were grazed on moorland. They had no interactions with humans at all, no medical treatment, um, no supplementary feed, and no contact. So they were as far as we could could get to. They were as wild as we could sort of find in this country. And then the 
The next group were a group where, which had a mixed management approach. So they were kept on moorland, but they were also intermittently brought onto conventional pasture and given supplementary rations during winter. They had foot trimming once a year and anthelmintic treatment once a year. So they had a sort of light touch management approach. And then the third group were a group that were domesticated um, as, you know, kept as, as you would keep a companion animal um, horse. And they, they were sort of stabled during the winter and fed concentrates during the winter, regularly wormed, regularly shod and regularly ridden and fed as you would feed a domesticated horse. So we sort of wanted to have the full spectrum, but controlling for um, breed and gender. And you collected fresh faecal samples from each of those three groups. So how did you analyse them? So we looked at, so in order to look at the microbiome, we sequenced the bacterial 16S gene, which is a conserved gene across lots of different, well, across all bacteria. And then you, through sequencing that in each sample, we could see the composition of the bacterial um, ecosystem in each sample of each animal. And then we analyzed these by um, using fairly complex uh, multivariate statistical approaches in order to look at how these overall, these ecosystems differed from each other overall. And then we looked at um, where, which specific bacteria were differing between the groups. Additionally, um, there is a way of predicting the metabolic pathways in, in microbiome populations. And this uses a, a reference database with all genetic information about each of the bacteria in a sample. And so using cross-referencing your bacterial composition with this database can give you an idea of what the likely function of that ecosystem of bacteria is. So we, we looked at that as well. And you found some significant differences in microbiota profiling between the increasing levels of management. Could you talk us through these um, and what these microbiota differences influence in the gastrointestinal tract? Yeah, so we found have found a huge number of differences. So I'll just try and summarise things um, fairly briefly here. But overall, we were quite surprised that we saw a very distinct um, sort of gradual shift between the three populations. So if we looked at one bacteria, it was always either higher or lower in the domesticated or wild group. And then the group that was had their mixed management approach was always more often than not in between the two. So we almost had sort of like a stepwise difference between the three groups. And if you look at the multivariate analysis, you can also see that the wild and domesticated groups were very much different from each other and the intermediate group was spanned between the two. So it looked like that the, the differences that we were seeing were genuinely associated with the level of management that these animals were, were having because we had this clear stepwise response to um, different levels of management. Um, overall, we saw that the animals which were kept in a domesticated environment had high levels of bacteria like proteobacteria, which have been linked in previous studies with increased starch levels and the, the, the feral group had increased levels of bacteria associated with fibre digestion um, such as methanobacteria so that made sense as well. Um, when we looked at the functional implications of this using the analysis that I've just mentioned um, we could see this mirrored in that and that there was a, an association with 
um, the met- met- metabolism of proteins and fats um, in and starch in the in the domesticated group, but in the feral group we saw much more emphasis on energy metabolism, so sort of generating energy from fiber. Um, what we weren't expecting was that we saw that there was a association between some sort of what appeared to be negative health pathways such as neurodegenerative diseases, um, nervous system diseases and cancer in the intermediate group. So we saw a a very confusing picture um, in in that group and and that led us to wonder whether or not that that intermediate group had a had a more dis, sort of uh, a less healthy microbiome, so to speak. But I hate to use that word because we didn't actually look at the health of the animals themselves. But that's what our data suggested in the microbiome. Well, that's fascinating. Um, did these findings correlate with those of previous studies? Yes, to a certain extent, because it's been shown before that, as I mentioned, that the the high fiber diets link with uh, bacteria such as methanogens. And that the high starch diets linked with bacteria such as proteobacteria. So it did link in, um, but there were there were some differences as well. For instance, we didn't observe any significant differences in bacterial diversity between the groups. Whereas I think it's quite widely thought that animals which are kept in a more natural environment would have a higher bacterial diversity because people link like well seem to link bacterial diversity as being a positive thing but we didn't see that here and that's a really interesting finding as well so are there any findings from this research that we can use to improve the management of our normal domesticated horses well it's hard at this point to translate um descriptive microbiome findings to clinical um, advice because at the moment the microbiome is such a complex field that we don't fully understand and we don't know the links that the def- we can't definitely link what we see with health or disease so it's it's hard to make um very specific advice based on these findings however what i think is probably the most relevant finding is that we we did see in this group of horses which had more Um, mixed management and perhaps less consistent management because they were sporadically supplemented with food and only handled occasionally and given drugs occasionally that they appeared to have a more unstable microbiome the bacterial diversity in that group was very um, varied between the animals whereas it's much more consistent in the other two groups and also when we as I mentioned when we looked at the functional analysis it looked like there were some negative pathways in in functional data um, which we were quite surprised to see so I would say if one possible um, piece of advice from this would be it seems to support data that changes in management and changes in diet are a negative thing for horses that consistency is important for their gut health which would make sense with everything we've thought so far regarding um, colic etc so um, what limitations did you come across during the study? Well, the study was limited in that it wasn't, uh, if we really wanted to to understand the impacts on health um, and disease, we would have looked at these animals for a lot longer. Um, and I suppose we, you know, it wasn't an experimental system. So we had very little control over exactly what happened to these animals. We were just describing how these different animals were 
were kept and looking at their microbiome. So to a certain extent, it's a, it's a descriptive study, which limits in terms of what we can conclude from it. But I think um, why we wanted to publish the data was because we saw such clear distinctions between the three groups, which made complete sense um, when you looked at what the fun- functional implications of that was. So we thought it was in, important to report, um, even though we can't conclude whether or not these are positive or negative for the horse's health in this study. And do you have any future work in this area? Any plans? Yes. Yeah, so moving on from this, we've noticed that there's a lot of variation in the re- the outcome of equine microbiome studies. There's, there's lots of studies out there looking at specific conditions, and there are some um, links between studies in terms of what they find, but there's also a lot of disagreement and conflicting re- data. And what we wanted to do is um, look at the overall picture and try and truly understand how the equine microbiome links with health and disease in horses. So we're doing some work where we're trying to um, pull together all of the data that's been produced on the equine microbiome so far globally and look at this using advanced um, sort of big data um, machine learning approaches to try and understand um, how this ecosystem links with, with equine health and so that we can try and move things forward in this area that sounds like a huge job but um a super important one yeah it's going to be a very lucky phd student with that job (laughs) Um, laura what's your take-home message for um clinicians and vets listening to this well i think it would come back to this concept that um we that stability is really important for equine gut health um and i think there are still probably parts um well you know equine systems where we don't emphasize that there's lots of change that happens quite quickly over short periods of time and i would say that i think it's really important to optimize equine health that we emphasize that sudden changes in diet or management are undesirable and they do actually have a profound effect on on the gut microbiome great well thank you so much for your time this morning brilliant thank you Our second author joining us today is Sloane Pierce. She's a boarded equine surgeon in eastern Washington in the USA at McKinley and Peters Equine Hospital. Sloane is joining us to discuss her recent paper titled Racing Performance of Juvenile Thoroughbreds with Femoropatellar Osteochondrosis at Auction, a Retrospective Case Control Study. Pierce, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast this month to tell us a little bit about your recent paper in EVJ. Could you start by um, talking us through the prevalence of OCD in thoroughbred weanlings and yearlings, including the sites we most commonly find it in? Yes, that's absolutely. Uh, it's definitely more common to see OCD in the hock, the tarsocrural joint, than it is to see it in the femoral patellar joint but it's definitely been reported and is seen quite commonly. Um, by quite commonly, though, it's still uh, across the board been reported as like less than 5% throughout different prevalence radiographic imaging survey studies. And what are the most up-to-date theories of the pathogenesis of OCD? My understanding of it, and there's um, an interesting paper that recently came out about looking at the um, blood flow uh, as it pertains to development and fetal um, cartilage development, but that it's a uh, injury-based disease that causes um, 
uh, separation or damage to the blood supply. And then we get these corresponding lesions. And that correlates with the age that this typically shows up in different areas and uh, predilection sites at different ages due to the blood supply being the, the changing factor. Perfect. So what previous studies um, have looked into and concluded on the effect of femoropatella OCD and surgery on future racing performance? I took this project on as my resident project and I was, as I went through this, I was pretty surprised how few papers there are. There are some, definitely some papers um, with some conflicting reports in terms of more patellar OCD and how they're managed. And um, the one of the things I noticed through that is a lot of those horses are operated younger. Um, and that, that being a, a thing with um, Clark is a paper and Dick is another where they um, saw decreased um, performance associated with these lesions. And um, uh, Dick in 1999 was one that had a longer lesions were correlated with reduced success, which Makes sense, absolutely, but um, there weren't an, uh, as much literature out. There wasn't as much literature out there as I expected there to be. So, what were the objectives and hypotheses of your study? Our objective was to quantify the presence of femoropatellar OCD in this population and investigate any correlation with femoropatellar OCD and its characteristics and that association with performance. So how did you collect your cases and what were the inclusion criteria for them? So we utilized radiographic reports uh, written by five veterinarians with Equine Medical Associates in Lexington. And they were reports that were done alongside uh, the repository films. Um, and they were thoroughbred weanlings and yearlings that were presented for sale. Um, horses um, that were born between 2010 and 2015, but the sales were between 2010 and 2016. And so we looked at, you know, their age, went back but through and, and um, quantified their age at, at time of evaluation. So how were the radiographs collected, interpreted and evaluated? So the radiographs were evaluated by these veterinarians at EMA um, and reports were written at, at the time of evaluation. The measurements and findings that were determined by these veterinarians were the, the parameters that were used to look at these horses. And so at the time of, of repository, any lesion that was seen was described and measured. Um, and um, those measurements were what we used to look at lesion characteristics. You had two sets of controls. Um, could you describe these for us and how they were also collected? Yes, that was a good bit of additional work, but I think was useful. So those two controls, we use sibling controls, which is a standard way to go about things and look through to um, any any uh, racing sibling controls to compare for performance, as well as there were enough radiograph reports that were performed that in every sale I had um, at least, or most most sales I had at least two um, controls to um, that were known to be free of the femoropatellar OCD because we didn't know if sibling controls were, were free of femoropatellar OCD. And there is a slight uh, heritability that's been found associated with femoropatellar OCD. Okay, great. So you had sibling, match sibling controls and case controls from the same sales. Yes. Fantastic. Um, so racing performance was used for the measure, was used to measure outcome. And which data did you analyze? So we looked at total starts and placements and total years raced. And we also looked, looked at starts and placements by years two to five. 
and compared them independently as well. So moving on to thinking more about your results, how many cases of femoropatellar OCD did you end up with? Because you must have had a large data set. Um, What was the prevalence of femoropatellar OCD overall, did you find? And how did this compare to the number of match sales and sibling case controls? So we had uh, 12,759 radiographic reports to go through, which represented about 31% of all horses presented for sale during that time period. Through those, um, that large number, we identified 474 from more patellar OCD cases, and that represented a prevalence of 3.7% of the the reports evaluated, which isn't reflective of the total, but that's what we have to go on is a 3.7% prevalence, which we hope is pretty reflective, but don't know for sure. Um, And then of those 474 cases, 45 raced outside of the U.S. and were excluded. And so we were left with uh, 429 cases to look at with 526 hip controls and 1,072 sibling controls. Okay. So you found that sex had an influence on... um prevalence of femoropatellar OCD. Could you describe your findings based on the, yeah, the sex of the horse? Yes, this was an unsurprising finding. Males had more starts, places, and total years raced. And that's pretty common and, and tried and true through several studies to find. So how did racing performance of cases compare to that of the match controls eventually? Yes. So Casey, cases made fewer starts than hip and sibling controls and four-year-old placements uh, in, in both the, the control groups. So in addition, the compared to the hip controls, cases raced fewer total years and made fewer total places. And all the, the differences were small. This was significant. And this is something to definitely take away from this, this study. So did you find any difference between the right or left limb? the medial or lateral trochlear ridge or any of the lesion characteristics um, made when measuring the defects on x-rays? Yeah, that's a really important question to ask about this study. Our correlations with lesion characteristics were all found to be weak. It's important to investigate and, and look at the implication for future racing performance with these characteristics. And significant changes were found, but the highest R value was 0.4, and that was with the left medial trochlear ridge depth of lesions, and that was weakly correlated with an increase in three-year-old placements. So although significant changes were found, there likely isn't a clinical difference with the characteristics that was found in the study. Okay, that's a good point to take home. What were the study limitations? What did you find? So we were doing a repository study, a a retrospective repository evaluation. And so we have no info on how these horses were managed after this one point in time evaluation. And so um, we noted if surgery was identified at the time of evaluation, but it was unlikely that we have any reason to know not unlikely, but um, so sorry, but um, we we don't know how these horses were managed going forward, and so that's the main thing to take away is is a lot of the management um, it can have a huge effect on how these horses progressed, and we have no info on any of that. Okay, so do you think the radiographic findings of OCD? influenced or could influence the type of owner or type of trainer who then bought them and therefore influence future racing performance? Absolutely. 
And that's another thing that we just, we just don't know. Um, but you know, clinically we do know that working with people, we know that that's, there's certain people that are willing to take those horses. Um, but ultimately we, we don't know and don't have a way to look at that in this study. Okay. So what's your overall take home message for clinicians looking at these lesions and trying to make a clinically sound judgment on them? So the cases had a decreased performance as compared to controls. And although that difference was small, um, there, that was a, uh, a statistical significant that was found uh, finding that was seen through across several different ways that we looked at it. And so that is the take home is that um, although there's a small difference, decrease in performance, there is a difference. Okay. So judge it cautiously. Yes. And in terms of there's always exceptions to the rule and this isn't a, um, a negative across all horses with that, but there is a decrease in performance when looking at larger numbers. Okay. Okay. Well, Piers, thank you very much for your time. Um, this sounds like a huge amount of work and a huge amount of data to go through as well. So we really appreciate you coming in and talking us through it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and Evie Jane Conversation will be back in October. 